Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. From John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. You forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who is called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see mark of the nails in his hands and put my fingers in the mark of of the nails in my hand on his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that you, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for this day, for the beautiful sunshine. Uh, We give you thanks and praise for uh, the chance to gather and worship. And we give you thanks and praise that you are the God who arrives with us and among us, even in the places where we would lock you out. 
We pray that you would help us to know you better this morning, that you'd make us attentive to your word, that you would help us to listen well and to, through knowing you better, make you better known in this world. We pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds, that they would be acceptable in your sight. We pray in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So one of the things that I love about uh, the, the Christian calendar, the church calendar, is that Easter isn't just kind of a one-off, uh, one, one Sunday uh, where we do uh, different things and we have an unexpectedly high turnout and, uh, and maybe some extra chocolate on that day. I, I love that it's, it's, uh, it's not what my calendar on my phone continues to insist, which is that it's a one-day regional holiday. Um, instead, Easter is a, a whole season, right? It's 50 days in which we get to intentionally join in with the disciples in doing the creative and generative and possibly terrifying work of trying to figure out what it means to say that we live in a world in which Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. What does it mean to live in a world in which the will and way of Jesus is the will and way at the heart and center of all things? You know, we don't rush off to the next thing. We, we slow down and we lean in. Now, probably every year I say that I think this Sunday is, is more important than last Sunday in a lot of ways. You know, what we do after the excitement and the sugar rush of Easter morning actually says more about what we celebrated last week than anything else. Now is when the rubber hits the road. Now we start to ask together, to, to live together, to imagine together how we answer the question, what if it's true? That, that's kind of a grounding text, or a question for me rather this year. I'm using it as kind of a devotional base to help me lean in. And I'm going to invite you through the next several weeks, uh, through the season of Easter, to join me by letting that question help us to reflect on the scriptures we're going to read together. What if it's true? Now that doesn't mean that I'm going to spend the next several weeks trying to prove the resurrection or, or trying to simplify the logistics of it. Uh, I'm not going to try to explain the resurrection into submission. I, I, I'm working from the conviction that something happened on that first day of the week that was uh, caught everyone, even Jesus' most trusted and closest friends by surprise. And it's a surprise that changes everything. Something happened on that first day of the week that means that the will and way of Jesus is the will and way at the heart and center of all things, and that not even death is going to stop that. And that matters on the ground, like in our everyday lives. What does it mean if it's true? And, you know, I'm glad that we get to begin this adventure with Thomas. <laughs> now, Thomas gets a bad rap. Now, we tend to forget that uh, not long ago, back in chapter 11 of John's Gospel, Thomas was the one who, when Jesus was heading off to Jerusalem, uh, and he was told it was, it was clear that his life was going to be in danger, Thomas looked at that fact, that reality, and said to the other disciples, let's go with him that we might die with him. Now, Thomas knew the cost of following Jesus, and he's all in. And he's, he's not afraid. He's the only one who's not locked away in fear on that first evening of the week. 
But, you know, we don't call him Thomas the Brave. We, we don't call him Faithful Thomas. No, he gets Doubting Thomas, which seems a little unfair to me, especially since I think probably honesty compels all of us to admit that we're probably right there with him in this story. I mean, I certainly have questions. And anyways, Thomas wasn't just doubtful. He's a, he's a realist, mostly. You know, whether it's the reality that being with Jesus could cost him his life or the reality that dead people tend to stay that way, He's not afraid to call it like it is. <laughs> uh, to see the facts of things and name them. And I, I like that about him. But I also like that he's not afraid to change his mind. You know, in fact, he's the one who gets it right eventually. The others rejoice. He's the one who drops to his knees and calls Jesus uh, what he is, my Lord and my God. And, you know, the thing is that God doesn't, like, eviscerate our personalities God doesn't do away with the things that make us us when we come to faith. No, we become more ourselves, more truly ourselves. So knowing what we know about Thomas, we can bet that confronted with this new reality, he spent the rest of his days trying to live it out, shaping his life accordingly. You know, but the, maybe the thing I like the most about Thomas's story is that where he does doubt, Jesus shows up to that doubt. Jesus shows up to his uncertainty. Jesus gives him what he needs in order to get him in on this thing. You know, and, and in the meantime, the other disciples don't kick Thomas out of their crew because he's not where they're at. Now, Thomas isn't excommunicated because he has questions. And the church shouldn't be a place where we don't ask questions or where doubt is not an option. You know, as the, the pastor and, and preacher Brian Zond ha, has put it, uh, Christianity suffered more casualties from faux faith than from honest doubt. I mean, nobody ever came, became a Christian because they lost an argument, right? And the fact is, if, if doubt isn't a little bit of our Easter experience, then we probably haven't really started to wrestle with it. And we don't have to be afraid to welcome doubt. But we also get to live in the promise that Jesus will show up to in those places of doubt. We get to live in the promise that, like Thomas, Jesus is determined to give us what we need in order to get us in on this thing. And, you know, my guess is that if Thomas had needed Jesus to come back again and again, week over week, Jesus would have done that until Thomas had what he needed to get him in on this thing. I'm confident that Jesus will do the same for us. And, you know, I have, I have questions and thoughts about what Jesus means when he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. You know, first of all, I like that it says that who have come to believe, right? That kind of affirms that belief is not usually a lightning bolt experience, but it's a process of living into a new reality. And, of course, the Gospels are written for the sake of folks just like us, uh, folks who never met Jesus in the flesh. As the writer of Hebrews puts it, our faith is evidence of things unseen. You know, but I've been wondering if part of what Jesus means here is, is just the fact that Thomas missed out on a week of living in the light of the resurrection. And Jesus didn't miss out when, by Thomas digging in his heels. Thomas missed out. I don't want to miss out. I don't want you to miss out. So while I want to welcome our doubts and, and trust Jesus to show up to them, to trust him to give us what we need in order to get in on this thing, I also want to invite you to lean into this question with me. What if it's true? Even if we don't have all the details worked out. What if it's true? 
I mean, as I was reflecting on this passage for today, uh, through that question, two things stood out to me. There's probably others, but two things stood out to me. The first is, if it's true, we get peace and we get purpose. If it's true, we get peace and we get purpose. If it's true, we get peace. I love that the first thing that Jesus says to his disciples is, peace be with you. Peace be with you. I don't know if that's the first thing that would have been out of my mouth if my closest friends had all abandoned me when I needed them most. Frankly, I've always found it kind of marvelous that Jesus shows up to these lousy bums at all. I mean, if I was Jesus, I'd have gone and done a jig on Pilate's desk. I'd have had a word with the religious leaders who doubted me. I'd have let the world know who I am. Now, for these and many other reasons, mercifully, I am not Jesus. And he chooses to come back to the ones who've locked themselves away in fear, who are hopeless and helpless and lost. And instead of going up one side of them and down the other for not paying attention, when he said this is exactly what was going to happen, right? He would be crucified and on the third day would raise. He said it over and over again. Instead of demanding to know why they were so fickle in his time of need, instead of forcing them to their knees to grovel for forgiveness, all of which seemed perfectly reasonable to me, instead he says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. That's the resurrection word. <laughs> the peace of Christ is the baseline of resurrection life. And that begins with, with peace between us and God. Right? Peace is God's word to us. You know, the scene in the upper room is a reminder that there's no length to which God will not go to be with us and for us. As the writer of Colossians says, in Jesus God was pleased to reconcile to himself everything in earth and in heaven, making peace through the blood of the cross. The resurrection holds the promise that there is nothing, not even death, as we heard Paul say, that will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing in our past, nothing in our present, nothing in our future can separate us from God's love. Nothing we've done, nothing done to us, nothing will keep God from chasing after us in love in order to have us and heal us and make us whole. You know, we, we have a kind of grand scheme theological peace. As the old hymn rings out, it is well with my soul. But you know, I also want to take seriously the very specific condition of the, uh, the disciples when Jesus shows up to them, right? They must have been wrecked. They must have been wrecked. I mean, they'd failed their beloved teacher and friend. They'd run when things got tough. They, they'd watched the one in whom they'd put all of their hope, beaten and broken and nailed to a cross. They'd been reminded of the cruelty and callousness of the world, and they were afraid. It's there, into that mess, that Jesus brings his peace. When it seemed like everything else was ruined, at the bottom of it all, the disciples are encountered by the peace of the one who loved them to the end and then through it. Now, nothing outside the walls of that room was any different, not as far as anyone else could tell. But for the disciples, everything is different. For the disciples, everything's different. So, you know, to make sense of it all, I can only look back on times in my own life when things seemed to be going sideways, and yet the presence and peace of Jesus flooded in, sometimes into places where I would have locked him out, where I didn't think it was appropriate for Jesus to be. And this is how he is. 
Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't wait until everything is perfect and the conditions are ripe for some kind of idyllic peacefulness. He's perfectly glad to bring his peace into places we think it's impossible. It it reaches back to to his final great teaching to his disciples, where he says in in John chapter 14, he says, I I give you my peace, but not as the world gives. That's such an evocative phrase, right? Not as the world gives. What does that mean? It's, It's worthy of meditation. But I think it means at least this, that the peace of Christ is is not earned, it's freely given, and can only be freely received. It's not conditional on our behavior or our worthiness, which means that it won't be taken from us, no matter what. We may turn from him, but he will not turn from us. We may turn from him, but he will not turn from us. It's not a measurement of our value. None of us has any more access to the peace of Christ than anyone else. And it's not circumstantial. You know, it's what Paul calls the peace that passes all understanding. Peace beyond all understanding. It's more than a a day at the spa or a quiet walk in the woods, which is lovely enough. But it's the kind of peace that would have Paul singing in a prison cell. This is Jesus' resurrection word. Peace be with you. Now, if if it's true, then, then peace is one of the basic conditions of our lives. We're just free to receive that peace. And not just to receive, we're not just passive receivers, we also get to be people of peace, even when the world around us rages. We get to be people of peace. Which leads to the second thing that I'm seeing in this passage. We have peace and we have purpose. Right? And in case you missed it the first time, Jesus says it to us again. Peace be with you. But then he adds, as the Father sent me, so I send you. The Father sent me, so I send you. And back in chapter 14, where he said that he gives peace, but not as the world gives, he also said this, that anyone who believes in me will do the things that I do, and heaven help us, even greater things. The promise of Easter is true. We have purpose, a particular purpose. <laughs> we, are, we are a sent people. We are sent into the world as ambassadors of the way of Jesus. We are sent to let our lives bear witness to his way of peace in the world, and even more, because Jesus gathers us in his peace, and he sends us as we're sent, but we're not sent on our own devices. No, we are sent covered and consumed and filled by the Holy Spirit, the life and breath of God. You know, a while back, some of you may remember, I, w- I was on kind of a kick about what St. Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, gentleness, and self-control. If we'll understand how Jesus sends us out, we need to understand the power and authority with which he sends us out, which is the, the power and presence of the Spirit in our lives. So our Christian purpose is not so much about what we do for a living, though I think it can't be divorced from that. You know, if we can't do something in the name and way of Jesus, then we're perfectly free not to do it. (laughs) And it's foolish to do otherwise. But in whatever we do, we get to be planting seeds and bringing the blooms of the fruit of the Spirit. That's what we're most truly made for. That's how we're sent as he's sent. 
You know, whether we're spending our days at a desk or, or uh, work in a workshop, retired or, or raising kids in courtrooms or classrooms, in checkout lines, on playgrounds, at home or in the world, we are made to be the answer to this question, what if it's true? We're a sent people, sent as Jesus is sent to be bearers of truth, of the good news in a world that desperately needs some good news. And I admit that the, the problems of the world mostly seem insurmountable to me, but not any more so than I think they did to those first disciples. You know, and, and here's the thing. The, 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 the disciples didn't head out of that room ready to take on the Roman Empire, ready to crumble the, the religious and political establishments of their day. No, they just began to live day by day, day in and day out, in the hope and promise that they were living and moving and having their being in a world in which Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, and that his will and way is at the heart and center of all things. Now they, and they, they, they moved from the truth of that to what's possible. They moved from what's true to what's possible in the light of that truth. And they began to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Right? They began to love as they'd been loved without condition, to the end and then through it. They began to be people of deep joy. They were always singing and throwing dinner parties. They began to be people committed to peace and nonviolence, whatever the cost. They began to be patient people, committed to presence and to formation, to forgiveness and a whole lot of second chances. They began to be kind as Jesus is kind, giving their attention and time to whomever needed it. They, they began to be gentle in a world in which might makes right and to receive honor is to, to overpower others, which is a world not so different from ours. They began to be generous in a way that baffled their neighbors. They, they created this whole new economic reality in which there were no poor among them, Luke tells us in the book of Acts, and everyone had everything they needed. They began to be faithful in the way that Jesus had been faithful to them binding themselves to one another even when they didn't much feel like it. They began to be self-controlled, not running frantically every which way, but like an athlete, working and diligently practicing, training to be the kinds of people who are sent as Jesus is sent. You know, in that way, they lived the answer. They lived in response to the truth that they were in a world in which Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and his will and way are at the heart and center of all things. And they did it with what they had and where they were, and they even planted seeds that they would never see the fruit of. And it changed the world. May it be said of us. Amen.